0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's just turned four o'clock and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR and you have been listening to a recording of Great Voices back to March 2012 with Chris Gaffney and Bill Hogarth. And hopefully Chris will be back with us very soon. Today on the program, a special, very special Nobel Peace Prize for ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. And I was reading out an opinion piece of which was Broadcast, which was not broadcast, was it? Sent in the Age on Sunday by Dr. Mar- Margie Beavis. and I'm hopefully to speak to Professor Tilman Ruff when he gets back from accepting the prizes for the Nobel Peace Prize. But today we'll have human rights defenders taking their evidence of abuse to the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. I'll be speaking once again with Peter Murphy human rights and trade union activist. Showdown looming regarding proposals for deep sea mining off the coast of PNG. Natalie Lowry is with the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. An update on Western Saharan struggles for self-determination and justice over their resource theft with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And in that same area as PNG, local landowners oppose plans to reopen the Panguna mine, which was closed in the late 1980s, and that's on Bougainville. I'll be speaking with Cantemarra Crofts, the first Bougainvillian who gained refugee status here in Australia. But first, let's just talk about, for a couple of moments, that wonderful Nobel Peace Prize born in Australia. And Dr. Marky Beavers, who is an ICANN board member, had an article published in The Age on Sunday, and I'd like to read the article to you. Titled, A Nobel Peace Prize Born in Australia. Australians can be very proud. The winner of the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICAN, started in Melbourne. It began when the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, MAPW, recognised that nuclear weapons, the very worst of the weapons of mass destruction, were still legitimate. This contrasted with chemical weapons, biological weapons, cluster musicians, landmines, even dum dum which all have been made illegal by UN treaty with impressive results. The late Dr. Bill Williams, a key member of the founding group, wrote, After the energetically anti-nuclear 80s and the end of the Cold War, nuclear holocaust, always unthinkable, became almost unmentionable. A mass self-censorship, a mental no-zone, no-go zone, a cone of silence descended. Little wonder no sane person wants to contaminate their dreams with this ultimate terror. But to finish this journey of survival to abolition, we need to penetrate the fog of fear and denial, informing ourselves and our neighbours without inducing psychological paralysis. In 2006, he was part of the founding group of MAPW members, along with Tillman Ruff, Dimity Hawkins, Sue Wareham and others. The highly successful Landmines Campaign was taken as a model. For MAPW, this was a bit like giving birth to a guerrilla. ICANN very successfully brought together existing humanitarian organisations, clearly identifying nuclear weapons as a humanitarian issue, not a political one. ICANN now has 468 partnership organisations in 101 countries. It was pivotal to the UN adopting the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW, on the 7th of July this year. In 2007, IPPNW, the 1985 prize-winning, Nobel Prize winning group the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, adopted ICANN as a core campaign. Locally, the Pula Foundation helped ICANN get established and later a major contribution came from the Norwegian government. ICANN and its many partners worked tirelessly educating governments about the urgent need for action. In 2013 and 14, Norway, Mexico and Vienna Hosted intergovernmental con- conferences attended by more than 150 countries. Throughout the campaign, graphic stories from the Hibakusha, the survivors of the bomb of World War II, and survivors of nuclear weapons testing, brought home the appalling personal costs of these weapons. The Red Cross emphasised the only possible option is prevention, given all doctors ambulances and hospitals are destroyed in a nuclear blast. Any meaningful response is impossible. The longer-term impacts of a limited nuclear exchange are also devastating. So much atmospheric dust would be created that a nuclear winter would follow, reducing crop yields for more than a decade and causing a famine, putting two billion lives at risk. It is horrifying that North Korea now has nuclear weapons, but also horrifying are the existing 15,000 weapons with weight 1,800 ready to launch. There have been numerous very close calls where human and technical errors have brought us perilously close to nuclear war. After nearly 50 years, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, has stalled, with the entrenched need for consensus-blocking effective action. South Africa likened the situation to apartheid, with the the nine nuclear weapon states having a different set of rules for themselves compared to the rest of the world, effectively holding the rest of the world to ransom. ICANN offered a new way forward, aiming for a UN General Assembly-based process. Thus, the nuclear processing states could no longer block the wishes of the majority of nations. This treaty deliberately harmonises with the NPT, both working towards a common goal. Shamefully, Australian government has worked to undermine this process. The Australian delegation at the UN Working Group last year was described in the press as weevils, much to their myth. True Grin. A key strategy of the ICANN campaign has been humour, horror and hope, so typically ICANN provided photogenically sign carrying weasels, hopelessly greeting Australian politics politicians as they continued their anti ban treaty arguments. On the seventh of july, the TPNW was resoundingly adopted, one hundred and twenty two countries in favour, one against the Netherlands, and one abstention, Singapore. Finally, nuclear weapons will be clearly on the same footing as biological and chemical weapons. This will not be a fast process. It will take a couple of decades to steadily and verifiably reduce stockpiles. But the TPNW has been recognised by the Nobel Peace Committee as critical in making the world a much safer place. Australian Government in refusing to sign the treaty but both the ALP and the Greens support a nuclear weapons ban. Australians strongly support it too. Both ALP and Liberal voters are more than 70% in favour in a poll taken last month. Given the appalling and indiscriminate impacts of these weapons, denial is no longer acceptable. Australia needs to show leadership and sign this treaty. And that was written by Dr. Margaret Beavis, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and a board member of ICAN Australia. And congratulations to all who worked on this campaign for many, many years. Now let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy and see what sort of a week he's had.
2: Jane Lister when the government finally listened to its energy policy expert former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses and abandoned a clean energy target because it doesn't need a clean energy target because clean energy doesn't need a target anymore because clean energy is hurting dirty energy and so we need and now have a new environmentally responsible dirty energy target to be known as debt but The Minister for Fossils, and caving into tiny a bit more for the bosses Josh fryden Icebergs assured us the debt won't have to be paid by the dirty energy boardroom men in suits, uh, oh, and the few women in suits, and they assure us by the time the younger generations have to meet the debt, science will have found a solution. It always does. So you believe in science. The science is clearly inconclusive. Tiny exuded logic during a speech to the Flat Earth Society in London, pointing out the science was not only clearly inconclusive, but had been proven to be false. There is no such thing as climate change, and here's where the logic ran riot. And climate change could be a good thing. Old people won't freeze to death. Old people won't freeze to death. That's the uh, climate change that isn't climate change. Good climate change that isn't climate change. Remember at US old big supremo Donald or the poor Secretary for Fossil Scott Pooinett, in the wake of the hurricane disaster, said it would be insensitive to discuss climate change at, the, at that time, at this time. Well, last week Donald said the aftermath of yet another gun massacre was not the time to discuss guns. That's politicising a non-terrorist event, because this was a white middle-class male, and accountant, not an evil terrorist. Thankfully, like our own minister for going overseas all the time, and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash-Up, the workers, who said True Blue Aussie's thoughts and prayers were with the victims, Donald's thoughts and prayers are also with both the hurricane and gun massacre victims, which is something, well, everything. Because that's as good as it's going to get, even though Donald told the Puerto Rican victims who were uh, selfishly complaining that just maybe he could do a bit more for them, like something, that the U.S. response had been great, amazing, tremendous, incredible. Yeah, he struck them all together, and by his standards, that's a sentence. And we know Donald isn't given to hyperbole or narcissism, and in fact, we'd have to agree with the amazing and incredible descriptions of the response. But he did tell the victims how much the great, amazing, etc., had cost, and implied they could expect the bill any day, prompting an impromptu performance of West Side Story, I like to be in America. Speaking of bills of the public purse and thoughts and prayers, Julie had a stroke of luck. She must have joined the queue with all the other supporters because she scored a ticket to the grand final. And given she must have had some ministerial business down here the same day, she was forced to charge tax pay- taxpayers for a hard day's work. Not sure how much yet, but her grand final day cost us thirty five hundred three and a half grand last year, when Julie also must have by sheer chance had some ministerial business in Melbourne and was again lucky enough to score a ticket. And this time she was also able to sneak in a couple of caring business class party fundraisers at upmarket venues like a vineyard and a liberal ladies forum at at Big Four Control the World Economy accountant KPMG. Turns out she's also been lucky when it comes to her team, the West Coast Eagles, because she's managed to have a ministerial business on 17 occasions when the Eagles were playing away in the very city where they were playing, setting the public purse back a mere 29 grand. Still realised it was all worthwhile when I saw a picky of Julie chatting to Brody Boy made it to track he's no class trader Eddie McGuire you so poor over a bulging table of goodies and clutching a refreshing champers. Wonder if she saw any of the actual game? It's almost her segment this afternoon, because in a major breakthrough for women, Julie and Ivanka Trample the Poor got together in New York the other day and declared they would encourage women entrepreneurs and encourage women generally to drive economic growth. We concentrate very much on empowering women and girls, Julie boasted. And Ivanka obviously inherited her respect for women and girls from her dad. Women and girls make up half the population. Julie displayed the perspicacity that explains why she's worth every cent of her ministerial salary and hard-earned expenses watching the footy or enjoying a few shambers and a bit of lobster or the odd prawn at the footy. So, with Julie and Ivanka converting them into drivers of economic growth, women of the world must be uniting and whooping it up knowing Ivanka and Julie are the world feminist champions. We put this to a former Bangladesh garment worker injured in a major factory collapse who now lives in a very comfortable looking gutter with her three kids. Thanks to Ivanka and Julie, I will drive economic growth. She looked very pleased with herself. Back to the Guns Don't Kill bit, heard someone describe someone in in the U.S. of as disturbed and dangerous, and I thought, oh good, they've woken up, but turned out it was Donald himself talking about someone else. Well, about the people kill and not the guns kill person. Meanwhile, the Secretary for U.S. of World State, Rex Killamson, denied he had ever described Donald as an effing moron, fake news. I am proud to serve the interests of ExxonMobil, Rex clarified. Uh, don't you mean the U.S. of? Isn't that what I said? And this inquiry concluded that Russia had intervened in the U.S. of election, but couldn't conclude that the, the uh, Trample the Poor campaign was involved, and, and that that it wasn't involved is quite possible. It's very possible that the Russian sense of humor thought it would just be fun to settle the U.S. off with an effing moron. Speaking of, our Minister for Concentration Camps, Raise Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, headed to the U.S. Ob this week to talk a bit of co- cooperation with the U.S. Ob on Concentration Camps and Raise Wire, where he should be in his intellectual element. Although, seriously, we have to wonder what people must think of true blue Aussie when that vacuous-looking skull and matching mind lobs as our representative. Although we must thank Pete for providing us with one fact of which we weren't aware. The most affluent community on the planet per capita. And who would have thought? Could have had a million guesses and not got this one. Most affluent community on the planet per capita resides in the Manus Island Concentration Camp. Leading the world's most prestigious and biggest rip-off retailers and designers to set up shop on Manus to, ex- to exploit these billionaire exploiters of our innate goodness. Without Pete, we'd never have known. On that, Friday's True Blue Capitalist Review monthly glossy magazine produced its annual Power Edition. But as usual, they regard the puppet as more powerful than the puppeteer. Very strange, we'd think they'd know, especially given the panel to choose our most powerful comprised all these caring business class players and or caring business class party players like Amanda Millstone with the socialist cause, the workers represented solely by that great fighter for the working class, former ACTU supremo and bum on plush seats for years defending working people, Martin Cliché. At the end of the day, when the sun sets, in a very prosperous-looking suit, but obviously feeling extremely uncomfortable, like a fish out of in that company. Regard the puppet as more powerful than the puppeteer. Devoting almost twenty pages to the puppets, led by Malcolm himself, good heavens, he's got not only the usual puppeteers pulling the strings, but also that bunch of fossils led by Tiny a bit more for the bosses in the Party Punch and Judy show. Strings pulling, strings pulling, strings. And fossils, Barnacle and Peter Duffer came in third and sixth respectively in the power stakes. How's that for a reflection on this country? But then they go right back to page 82, almost the back cover, before they list the puppeteers. And with a full page to each puppet up front, they handle the great corporate puppeteers in pithy 3 part biogs. Wonder why a magazine devoted to the great corporates doesn't give the great corporates their due. Oh, finally, and to show how misleading the whole list is, number two most powerful person in the whole country, according to the panel, is Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition. That must have been Martin's influence. But little Billy denies he is a puppet of the puppeteers. I am not a puppet of capitalism. I am not a puppet of capitalism. I am not a pup... Excuse me, could someone shut that marionette up? It seems to be stuck. Of capitalism. I am not a puppet of... Please, does anyone know how to shut this thing up? Who's pulling the strings up there? Hello up there, can you hear me? My... My God, it's a big puppeteer. Hello, could you shut this thing up? Sorry, listener, total disorder here at the moment. Look, I'll have to go. I've got to get this glitch sorted out or we'll all go mad. Barnacle third, Duffer sixth. There's no climate change, but the no climate change is good for us. That's enough food to keep the thought patterns going for a week. Till then, good afternoon. And
1: it's good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And you can hear more of Mr. Kevin Healy tomorrow morning on 3CR either. 8.55 on your digital, no, not on your digital, on your ordinary clock radio. If you want to listen to digital, it's 3CR. If you listen on your computer, you can stream for a week, 3cr.org.au or you can have the program sent to your computer also via 3cr.org.au. But for those who just like to listen to the radio like we always used to, it's 3CR, 8.55am, and Kevin is back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock until 10.
0: Come to the Union Activism and History Conference featuring a first-hand account of BLF Green Band's Farm worker organising with the National Union of Workers, Rebel Women, A Secret History of Trades Hall, Campaigning for a Union Yes, and much more. The Union Activism and History Conference, hosted by Socialist Alternative and Red Flag Newspaper, Saturday, October the fourteenth, at Trades Hall Carlton. For more information and bookings, head to redflag.org.au. A three CR supporter.
2: Power
1: in when President Duterte began his murderous campaign against the poor in the Philippines, the world, particularly the Western nations, were quick to condemn the regime for its denial of basic human rights for all its citizens. One year later, as human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy said on this program two weeks ago, the criticism has been muted to almost silence. Now, last week, a promising sign that that might change as a UN body has become involved, the UN Human Rights Council. I spoke again with Peter yesterday. Peter, this move stems from work by human rights defenders in the Philippines, focusing not just on the past year, but going back decades, Who are these people and what evidence did they have to present to the 36th session of the UN Human Rights Council?
3: So many cases, but uh, there's a compulsory process in the United Nations Human Rights Council to review the actual situation of human rights in different countries uh, every few years. And the Philippines... It's a very you know, difficult place, but there's a lot of uh, committed human rights activists and organisations there which always um, ensure that at the uh, meetings in Geneva of the Human Rights Council there's a adequately researched report about the situation which may or may not match what the government of the Philippines says. And as, as your listeners would expect, um, in in these last decades and decades has been uh, consistent contradictions between the views of the human rights organisations and that of the government. That's continuing up to now. The good news, I think, is that at the recent sort of review of the... how are the recommendations of the review of the Philippines working out, 39 countries signed a statement saying that they didn't accept the uh, denials by the Philippines government about the uh, extrajudicial killings and the repression of human rights defenders themselves, it's an alphabetical uh, list. You know, but so I was very pleased to see that Australia was the first country on the list of 39 which had signed this statement. But
1: it's not just the last year of Duterte, is it? It's going back a couple of decades. It's
3: Yes, actually, it's never ceased in our living memory, uh, Jan. After the Marcos dictatorship, which was notorious around the world for its abuse of human rights, then we had a very brief holiday for about 18 months where the level of violence reduced in the country. But then the uh, new government of uh, President Corazon Aquino declared total war on the left-wing movement in the country and... Uh, murders of civilian activists just recommenced at a pretty bad pace. This has continued actually ever since uh, under one uh, president and then the next and then the next. There was a very bad period under President Arroyo from 2001 to 2010. And um, there was again hopes that President Aquino, that's Corazon Aquino's son, that his presidency would give respite. But again, it, it it perhaps slowed down a little bit but unfortunately in his six years of term there were hundreds of uh, actual civilian activists killed. When President Duterte came along he again promised to change that but instead he unleashed this dreadful uh, repression uh, allegedly against drug use which has probably now involved the killings of about 12,000 people in just one year. So it's This is actually in global terms a very extreme situation and uh, as well as that the other type of program of uh, more focused uh, intelligence driven assassination of civilian activists has also continued
1: just look at this un body the human rights council what's its role and how much power does it have or does it have any power
3: Its power is really moral and and to some extent political. It certainly has no legally binding uh, powers and no punitive powers or anything like that. But of course cases that are are developed and presented at the Human Rights Council can theoretically find their way to the International Criminal Court. But the Human Rights Council is, is really trying to oversee the way the basic human rights conventions, that is, legally binding treaties that countries sign through the United Nations for social and economic and political rights, they're upheld. And this review is is specifically uh, looking at the way those two main conventions on human rights are being implemented in the specific country that's being looked at.
1: Do any members of the Council go to these countries to investigate the claims that are made against them?
3: They do do that but uh, unfortunately or it's it's, it's understandable that uh, the governments of course have to agree about the Human Rights Council sending an investigating body to actually check out things. For instance we're seeing this particular issue with Myanmar at the moment. So far, the Myanmar's refused to allow a UN body to enter to check out what's happening to the Rohingya people. And uh, in the Philippines, there was a similar thing where Duterte and previous governments have said no. Um, But after some cajoling, usually something happens. So there have been, in the last, say, 10 years, formal visits to the Philippines by the special rapporteurs on extrajudicial killings. There was a request uh, for a, the Human Rights Council to send a, a team to look at what's happening now, and so far uh, the Duterte government has said no. Then there's some delegations that have come from the European Parliament in, in recent months, but they, they haven't really been able to penetrate to the necessary level you know, in their visits. You know, they, It was like a three-day visit, and they visited simply members of the Senate and the House of Representatives that's good as far as it goes it's clearly not going to uncover the, the hard reality.
1: Well, what were the human rights groups hoping to come from this?
3: Well they, they have got a declaration that there's a serious abuse of human rights going on. This is, this is important that the international community clearly starts saying to the Duterte government that this has to stop and then unfortunately the government has completely denied that there's any problem with the uh, police and military repression. That's why then 39 states have signed this letter uh, refusing to accept that view coming from the Philippines government.
1: Is the Philippines a member of this council?
3: Not a member, no. It's a, it's a, a member state of the United Nations though. So. The, on the Council, Australia is trying to be a member and of course there are other i'm not sure who the membership is right now but it, it's uh rotates so
1: there's actually no penalty against a country except a moral penalty
3: well eventually there can be a penalty in that the international criminal court also has jurisprudence you know a jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and war crimes and what we're talking about here are on the scale of crimes against humanity it's a Painfully slow process in the international community where governments are extremely reluctant to really take action against each other in these ways because they'd like to have the freedom to do these bad things in their own countries as well. And there are other reasons why, you know, government, say the Australian government in, in relation to the Philippines, it signed this statement, which is good, but on the other hand, it's an ally of Duterte against terrorism. So it's going to lay off in another way. And the United States has this sort of approach in many parts of the world as well that that sort of stops things happening.
1: And we also have to acknowledge, Peter, the danger that these human rights groups and their members put themselves in by going to bodies like this, but also just the day-to-day living in the Philippines for human rights defenders.
3: Yes, look, it's um, it's, it's always uh, admirable you know, if you get to a place like the Philippines and you find that there's a nationwide organization and it's got active members who are volunteers in very widespread uh, towns, cities and and villages even who are prepared to document abuses of human rights. So really when you get to the grassroots like that, you've got a local person or a group of local people who are prepared to personally face up to the victims, and then the alleged perpetrators as they try to document what took place when somebody was killed. Of course, then they are putting themselves in danger of uh, repression themselves because the killers uh, don't want to be exposed. So there's you know, tens and tens of uh, uh, human rights uh, recorders like this in the Philippines who have been killed, even in this last year. The bravery of people is, is really, you can't measure it really. But you have to put yourself in their shoes that you know, the future of their communities and their whole country in their mind is at stake. It's worth fighting for. People are brave.
1: And also the responsibility of various media outlets to make sure that their work is acknowledged.
3: Yeah, the media is a different level again. And of course, there's a lot of journalists being killed in the Philippines and in other countries, but the Philippines is one of the worst because it's generally a different pattern. Usually the, the, the journalist is reporting some kind of corrupt behaviour. So they're not uh, necessarily reporting on political repression or, you know, military abuses uh, and so on, but they, it's bad enough for them that um, they might report the... Uh, squandering of money or the pilfering of the public purse by a local government uh, official, a governor or a mayor or somebody like that and they'll get killed too. The media workers are all very careful as well and, and, and it's obvious that there's a lot of chill you know, in the Philippines about really re- reporting what's going on. People just have to be so careful.
1: And the role for human rights and trade union activists here in Australia?
3: Well, I think we have to just do a lot more than we are doing now to inform the public and to put pressure on our federal politicians about the truth of the situation in the Philippines. So they are really important and, and I think we're, we know them well. You know, the, the human rights centres, the legal centres for human rights in different universities and cities that have been speaking out about the abuse of uh, asylum seekers by the Australian government. We, we do have really talented people who are quite dedicated to upholding human rights and uh, it's simply a matter of bringing to their attention and the public's attention more forcefully how bad the situation is in the Philippines and how Australia really is engaged in it. Just in this last month, there's been some very disturbing events uh, happen. In uh, Luzon, on, in, in the main island of the Philippines, close by uh, Australian-based mining projects. The uh, Didipio area in Nueva Vizcaya—it's uh, on the northeast side of uh, Luzon. There is a Oceana Gold open-cut gold and copper mine there, and uh, there was a lot of community resistance to that mine operating because it would destroy agricultural land and pollute the river. There's a lot of little ore bodies all around the mountain where where that uh, mine is is now operating. And so there's efforts to expand mining in the area uh, are also underway and they're also resisted by the community. But as I said, about a month ago, uh, a battalion of the uh, Philippines Army swept through the main villages where the blockades of roads and so on have been organised and uh, 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 people were given lectures to uh, say that all of the organisations which oppose the mining are considered to be rebel, armed rebels, and they are a target for the military. So, uh, there's some of the some of the people were arrested. And then, uh, to the southern end of uh, Luzon, in the province of Batangas, there's a, a, a mountain where there's a proposed mine associated with Australian mining companies. And in that place, the uh, the Air Force of the Philippines was used to actually bomb the villages. This is a month ago. So this is really bad. And uh, the Australian government is very uh, vociferous in its support for the expansion of Australian mining operations in the Philippines, but this is really what happens. All of us in the trade union movement, in in the uh, anti-war movement, and in the broader human rights area all need to pay attention to, to this, and I'm certainly doing my best to bring it to the attention of our MPs. It, it seems to be all escalating. So we're going to try to get a fact-finding mission to go to Mindanao in November. I'm going to take part in it. If I get some more Australians to go, perhaps we could cover that, you know, in another interview. Sure. In a few weeks, maybe.
1: Thanks, Peter. Okay. And that's Peter Murphy, trade union activist from Sydney, also human rights activist, particularly Supporting the people in the Philippines, which he's been doing for many, many years, and also the people in Zimbabwe and Iran. You are listening to Melbourne's Community Radio Station 3CR. It's now 4, come up to 4.38. And in a moment we'll be hearing about what's happening off the coast of PNG.
4: The Indigenous Social Justice Association has been campaigning for over 10 years to end Indigenous deaths in custody and provide support to affected communities. Come join us as we let our hair down at a trivia night to raise funds to support our ongoing work. Bring yourself or come with a group and take home the trophy. Saturday the 21st of October at the Victoria Hotel in Brunswick. Tickets are $20 waged or $10 concession. For more information and to buy tickets, head to isja.melbourne.com. That's i s j a melbourne.com. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne proudly supports 3CR.
1: Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food.
4: Hi, my name's Paula. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 la,
3: la, 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 Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
0: A 3CR
1: supporter. Next, an update on the long campaign in Papua New Guinea against Deep Sea Mining in the Sea of the New Island Province. I'm speaking with Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. Natalie, a couple of new developments. The coastal communities in PNG have formally requested that the PNG government make public key documents relating to the licensing and the environmental impacts of this proposed project by the 18th of October or face the prospects of legal proceedings. That's tomorrow week. What's been the reaction from the government? Actually, it's been an
5: interesting reaction. Generally speaking, in the last couple of weeks, there's been quite a lot of media within Papua New Guinea around Nautilus because they brought over um, some representatives, in quotation marks, from New Island province in East New Britain to view their production tools, the three production tools which are... Being tested at Motokia Island, which is very close to Port Moresby. So generally speaking, people are, people are quite shocked in Papua New Guinea once they've seen the imagery of the machines. And I think it's waking, because this is quite a national issue, and it sort of seems to be waking a variety of people up, just from, you know, regular people to even some people higher up, some politicians. So, I guess for the, the coastal communities and the I guess the traditional owners they've been discussing looking at a legal option for quite a while now and um, on the fifth of September, um, hand delivered a letter to the Department of Environment Conservation and the Department of Mining requesting for key documents to be made public now they, this request has been happening since around two thousand and twelve, so there 's a series of Documents, which includes the environmental management plan, some oceanographic data sets, and a few other kind of key documents that really should be made public. And, you know, really in terms of free, prior, informed consent, this is what it's about. It's actually like, well, these communities should have access to all this information before anything goes ahead, before they, and of course, you know, communities have made it very clear they haven't consented to this, and the consultation has been very laxed. So I guess uh, in in this recent media, key representatives of this sort of broader alliance, the Alliance of Tawarawaria, that represent four different provinces in Papua New Guinea, two of which are very close to the site. One, which is Medang, they actually drove that Nautilus in around 2011 or maybe earlier than that, 2010. And then also sort of Port Moresby central province, there's a representative there and that's mainly because that's where the machines are. So those representatives um, who also live in the, each each of those provinces have basically called on the government to release these documents or they will look at litigation under Section 51 of the PNG Constitution which is the right to public information.
1: They can't pull the public-private partnership thing on this? Because the G government is a partnership in this, aren't they?
5: It would be interesting to see what they pull, but because this is under the constitution, I think that in terms of the legal advice that they've been seeking, I think that will be very hard for them to pull. And also, you know, whether they do or they don't release these documents, there will be a fair amount of media around any sort of litigation like this, which just continues to highlight. This sort of secrecy and in not, not giving the public and not just these representatives, but just more broadly Papua New Guinea, Guineans, access to what should be information that should be given around a project like this, particularly an experimental project, which Nautilus is now quite confidently stating it's an experimental mine, that this should just be available. It would be available here in Australia with any of our mines. So this is, uh, you know, absolute right for Papua New Guineans to have access to these documents.
1: And who were those select few who were chosen to go and have a look at the the machines that came from Nautilus?
5: Some of our, uh, I guess, uh, contacts we have in East New Britain and New Island province said they are certain ward um, members, so they're kind of like local government members, but they haven't been selected by community to go and view this, nor are they actually, particularly in New Island Province, landowners from the West Coast area, which is closest to the Sawada sites. So those representatives and other local communities are very annoyed at this, but they will be obviously taking this up with those particular people that have gone to see this machinery. And in that media, actually, because there were questions asked by some of those people that went to see the machinery, one which was around benefits, Lawless has made a um, statement in the media that um, there'll be minimal benefits which is what we've been saying for a long time there's very little benefits for local communities because the whole operation takes place out at sea um, when the ore is brought up to the vessel that vessel goes straight back to China for processing so at the moment Nautilus has built a bridge in New Island Province on the West Coast and some toilets, and there has been some work around the hospital. But when I was in uh, New Island Province in June, there was quite a few you know, community members that said, "This, you know, why don't they actually ask us what we need? Because building a over-engineered bridge, we actually need sealed roads. <laughs> and so, you know, I guess that's another issue which we see often with miners, is that for their sort of corporate social responsibility and to bring back to the investors and their shareholder meetings that present these great developments that they've done. But actually when you get on the ground, you realise with local communities, often those developments they've brought in aren't really benefiting or are not really much use to local communities.
1: Seeing a photo of the machines that they have brought in, it must have been a bit of over for the people, anyone who's there to sort of front up to have a look at these things yes well actually
5: one of the representatives around the litigation did get access and went and viewed the machines her response was that and, and even some of the photos that she put out on Facebook is these machines are even starting to rust she said they were huge and you know menacing looking machines and I think for a lot of people to think that these will be going into their oceans and, and out of sight, out of mind, so not actually anyone being able to really see what they're doing or the destruction they're causing or any way to really kind of regulate and monitor that is very, very concerning for Papua New Guineans as a whole. And even, again, as I said, there was so much media coming out over a couple of weeks. The vice president of Nautilus PNG stated, oh, well, you know we don't see this as just a three year project of Sawara One, we'll see another Sawara and another Sawara and so there's another thing that then brought to attention for Papua New Guineans is that Sawara One is just one site if that opens up they have exploration exploration licenses all through the Bismarck Sea which will, you know, if that was to all open up, could potentially impact 2 million people so I think, um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of awareness raising over the years but It's interesting how Nautilus' media (laughs) in in Papua New Guinean media has really... You've seen it quite alive in places like social media and Facebook where there's many, many people commenting. It's going on to many different Papua New Guinean page sites, news page sites, where overwhelmingly people are very much opposed to this going ahead.
1: And Nautilus still maintaining that we know environmental consequences.
5: Yes, which I don't know who helps them with their PR... (laughs) Honestly, in the last couple of weeks, in some ways, they've been, their messaging has not really helped them from trying to reclaim this experimental mining. It's like they've tried to reclaim that as something, a good thing. <laughs> then talking about minimal benefit and then saying no environmental consequences. Basically, they... they they must think Papua New Guineans are stupid by trying to put out this sort of messaging, and they're not. And they've seen the devastation of land-based mining over and over again and the lack of benefits that come down to local communities. So it's interesting to see uh, a development like this become a national issue um, and reaching quite far and wide, and of course you know, social media is only one way to kind of view this because not it's still only a small percentage of people that access the internet. But there has been quite a f- fair amount of articles within the print media as well.
1: And it's pretty clear that investors aren't convinced either. They're still having problems getting enough money to get this off the ground.
5: Absolutely. And that's something, um, as the deep-sea mining campaign, we've been talking about it a lot we try and put within our media because our media is obviously we, we, we try and work with the representatives to do joint media but we also media is also targeted at investors and potential investors of nautilus so right now nautilus and this is also you know out of their media releases need to raise around 40 million us dollars before the end of 2017 and an additional Two hundred and seventy million u s dollars in order to sort of complete the build and deployment of the production tools um, for the so one project so that's a fair amount of money because they're not a big company and they've been struggling financially to raise this money so as the deep sea mining campaign that is something that we will continue to highlight um, I guess our concern and we do share this with local communities who are opposed to so one project that Whilst Nautilus may not be able to raise that money, and maybe that means Nautilus will disappear, we have to be prepared that there, will, there could be a Chinese company that could come and take this project over. The main shipping vessel that will be collecting the ore for this operation is being built in China, and that's where the ore will be processed. So it's very clear to us that China is sort of waiting in the wings, and. Um, some recent preliminary research that we've done, which um, we haven't published as yet, it looks at China and deep sea mining in the Pacific, and it's it's, it's a little concerning <laughs> the research that's come up. This is an industry that China is very very keen to engage in, not, not just within the sort of economic exclusive zones of countries, but also in international waters like the Clarion Zone, where it's been carved up by 26 countries to try and grab the manganese nodules, which lie up to 6,000 metres deep in the ocean.
1: Is that the only thing they're after, manganese nodules, or are there other minerals as well?
5: So there's three types. There's the hydrothermal vents, which is what the Solar One project is, and a lot of the nautilus, all the nautilus sort of licensing around is is the hydrothermal vents. And that's um, predominantly copper and gold, but there's a lot of other minerals and metals as well. Then there's cobalt sea crust. Uh, which form on these sort of seamounts. There's quite a lot of deposits around the Cook Islands, which have now um, developed their own sort of seabed mining um, law and looking into that. And then there's also the manganese nodules that I mentioned, and they contain a lot of minerals, including rare earths, and that's something that the industry uses a lot in terms of trying to promote... We need seabed mining because we need to access re-earth because this is for green technology. So that's one of their kind of messages, which, you know, we say that's actually not necessary. We need to look at urban mining in terms of looking at actual our products and how they're built and making them last longer and um, be able to recycle them and bring them back into the production instead of the sort of wastage that we continuously have. So, you know, for us and for, for, for a growing amount of people actually, um, even internationally with quite a few international NGOs, we just don't think it's necessary to be mining our, our oceans when they already are under salt with uh, pollution, overfishing and obviously climate
1: change. And when you think of all those communities in the Pacific that rely, as you said, on on the the fish for their, well, it's their livelihood, isn't it? Really, it's not for their yes. own, for their own benefits as well, but also export.
5: That's right. I mean, these local communities don't see um, a division between the land and the ocean. This is all their customary territory, and they have lived and survived off this for thousands of years. And really, where things should be going in a place like Papua New Guinea is identifying and looking at the economy of PNG, which. Is a hybrid economy. You have a lot of people living subsistence, so markets and things like this are very important. That's not necessarily recognized in the sort of Westminster system that's been plonked on Papua New Guinea in this very diverse country. And also, what are the alternatives to these types of developments? And I think those alternatives are already there for a lot of communities, but they're not being, you know, encouraged or supported. That's a real shame and this sort of extractive ideology that, you know, we see kind of all through the world is very much in Papua New Guinea. Whether it's oil plantations or whether it's, you know, big large scale mines or just logging itself, you know, it's having quite devastating effects on people's lives and livelihoods and their cultures.
1: And people in PNG, the, the grassroots people have benefited very little from all these extraction resources in no, decades.
5: That's right, and in fact, not even not it's not just they haven't benefited; they've ended up with a whole lot of issues, from land grabbing to you know quite, from pollution to violence, particularly around some mines, and and women are front line to a lot of that. And a lot of the, the, the a couple of the communities that are you know very strong against Sawada, the Sawada one project going ahead are also very front line to rising sea levels and climate change, so they're having to. You know, for them, they go, well, we're having to, you know, adapt and work out how to live with rising sea levels. Why would we need this industry that's not going to benefit us but is only going to cause us more issues and could create some real issues for our livelihoods, particularly, you know, being able to fish? And that's a real, a real thing for them, you know. So that's, you know, a big reason why they're opposing this and are looking at a legal strategy to try and halt Sawada 1.
1: So we wait till the 18th of October to see what the result of that threat?
5: Yes, so they're working with Salcor, which is um, actually friends of Papua New Guinea, um, and they are um, environmental lawyers, so they do obviously litigation but advocacy as well. So I guess after the 18th they will probably all sit together and, and look at what the next steps are to the litigation. So from what I'm aware, they're looking at that litigation starting up before the end
1: of the year. And we'll have to keep a watch on that with Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, supporting the people in PNG. And later on in the program, we'll be hearing about plans by various groups to restart the Panguna mine in Bougainville
4: against the wishes of the local landowners this mental health week brainwaves will be having a one hour special edition show the team will be attending the mental health Wellbeing walk hosted by the mental health foundation of australia we'll be talking to people along the walk sharing their stories and experiences of the day and reporting back for all of our listeners Tune in to 3CR on Wednesday, the 11th of October from 5pm to 6pm for the Mental Health Week special edition of Brainwaves or listen to the podcast on the 3CR website. Brainwaves, hear the world differently. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia.
5: 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond Bars 2017 CD. Okay, Parker, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I
4: say, no, nah, I won't worry about it. you know. Sure enough, here comes the truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8 p.m. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A, and deadly music.
0: Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the center of chaos. So this has become unfortunately enough a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff and, and there's less there's less chaos in here than there is out there.
5: Beyond the bars twenty seventeen C D launch,
4: Thursday second of November upstairs at Mesa, six till eight PM I'm
5: Jane Clifton.
1: Repression is increasing in many parts of the world as people seek to express their desires for justice, political freedom and their human rights. And the people of Occupied Western Sahara are no stranger to repression and violence. I'm speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And Kate, just a couple of weeks ago, another example of police violence has been videoed, shown across the world. And one person who was savagely beaten was a guest here in Australia just two years ago.
6: Yes, she's the, a very well-known human rights defender, Sultana Kaya. doesn't live in El Ayun, the main city. She lives on the coast at Boujdour. She has an association that looks after the natural resources as well as human rights. She's always tangling with the police because she has... A lot of courage and she goes out and she will wave her flag which is very dear to her and she wants to assert the right to wave her flag in her own country but I've been to the Western Sahara under Moroccan occupation and I know very well that the sight of a flag is like a red rag to a bull and so she does this knowing full well that she will cop it from the police for doing this and indeed there are uh, videos and still photos of the police. It looks like at least two different kinds of police, like the gendarmerie and the police, and also some plainclothes people from the security agencies who are all attacking her and kicking her, and, well, one of them grabs the flag, but uh, they um, are giving her a very hard time. The protest was supposedly about the conditions under which the Sahadawi political prisoners are being kept. In particular, the uh, group called the G'day group of just under 20 now who are still in prison, who have been moved to six different prisons throughout Morocco, further away, more remote for the families to visit, and... It may also not be completely coincidental that a delegation is due to come very soon from the United Nations Committee Against Torture who were going to interview these people and, of course, it does, would make it much more difficult for them to get around all the, different, the 18 different prisoners in the six different prisons.
1: Are there any international... Laws or whatever that says that prisoners should not be taken so far away from their homes and imprisoned in places where often I imagine the families don't even know where they are?
6: Yes, it took a a, a good 24 hours before the families found out that they'd been moved and I'm not sure how long it took for them all to locate each of their own family members. But uh, yes, I'm not a lawyer and so I, I can't really explain exactly what the status of the law is, but I think that there is international humanitarian law and there's some kind of customary law they talk about. And under that kind of law, there are precedents and things like that to go by, but unless a country is a signatory and unless they are fully committed to being a signatory to those laws... It can be very difficult to enforce them, I think. But under those sort of rules, as far as I know, it is the case that prisoners should be tried in the country in which the offence was committed. So that was the first thing that happened that was wrong about the Gadeh Mizik group because they were apprehended in Western Sahara, but they were moved to Morocco and they were tried in Morocco and they've been imprisoned in Morocco. They have asked to be transferred to their own country to, I don't know, but there's two prisons I know about, one in El Ayoun and another one in Dakhla, which would be much more convenient for their families. But, of course, the Moroccans want to make the families suffer and the prisoners suffer, so they don't take any notice of those requests.
1: I could imagine in countries like that too that the families would be required to supply a certain amount of food and medical supplies for the prisoners
6: indeed indeed I, I when i was there we went to a number of different prisons because we were testing the right of the prisoners to receive mail they claimed that they had not been receiving letters from family and the french group i was with had created a, a number of people who were sort of had adopted a particular prisoner and they were corresponding with this prisoner and they personally were coming with letters from themselves and some of their colleagues for prisoners and we weren't allowed to deliver the letters it was very ludicrous really but they said that we could fax the letters even though we were standing and could have handed the physical letter to a person they said no go away and fax it But while we were waiting, there was a a huge waiting room full of all the families and they were all carrying as many supermarket bags as they could that would have been full of food and other necessities for the prisoners. The uh, system does seem to rely on families to supply a lot of the food and certainly the healthier and nicer items in the diet, fruit and vegetables, for example.
1: We reported several months ago on the... EU ruling that trade with Western Sahara was not to be included in trade with Morocco, with Europe. Now it appears that there are efforts by the EU to undermine that ruling? Yes, this is really very
6: worrying because the European Union should adhere to the findings of its court. It is the highest court in Europe. It said that the, the trade with uh, Western Sahara couldn't happen under a trade agreement with Morocco. Of course, this severely inconveniences both the European fishermen, particularly, and, uh, the, and the Moroccans, because most of the fisheries are on the, off the Western Sahara coast. There's not many fish left in the Mediterranean, as we know, and the Atlantic coast of, of Morocco. But the Western Sahara Coast, sadly, they still have got plenty of fish that people want to get. Although we know that it's dangerous to overfish these days. And so they are trying to bend the rules and break the rules and find a way to get around this, this, this ruling. And I'm not quite sure what will happen. The only thing that I have read in the last couple of days that was promising is that Federica Mogherini, who's the head of the European Commission, I think, she stated that Western Sahara was a non-self-governing territory, which is sounds a, a silly thing to get happy about, but of course, if she acknowledges that that's the status of the country, that means that it's not part of Morocco and that the trade agreement has to pertain only to Morocco.
1: And is there any follow-up on that?
6: I haven't seen anything further about that. The only other thing that I've seen, which is a less happy uh, development, is that Morocco has announced that it would like to increase the agriculture around Dakhla five times, 500%. And
1: that's in Western Sahara? That's in
6: Western Sahara, in the south part, where they are already growing a lot of tomatoes and melons, under glass, probably hydroponically, they export most of those to uh, Europe. If they couldn't have the European market, it would be an open question what they could do with all of those agricultural items. And so it's not a very good sign if Morocco thinks that they can increase their production five times. They must think that they're going to get around this law
1: and I did read that Sweden's been caught out doing the wrong thing. That's it, yes. Oh, I mean, so many countries are in,
6: put themselves in ambivalent positions and they like to be good fellows and say the right things when it comes to human rights and the big issues. And so although it has always stated its public position is to support the United Nations in its peace plan for a um, referendum of self-determination in Western Sahara the Western Sahara Resource Watch has found that many Swedish companies are doing business with Morocco in Western Sahara they are calling on their government, on the Swedish government to give advice to these companies uh, to advise them against this practice uh, there's a some engineering companies that are providing machinery for the phosphate mines. I think they might be involved in some cases with the wind farms, but they are also involved with a tourism business doing kite surfing, also around Dahla, the same southern part of Western Sahara.
1: We have a new UN Secretary-General, is he making any moves towards a peace process or the renewal of the peace process in that area?
6: Yes, I believe so. He has uh, uh, n- now finally officially appointed a German ex-president called Horst Köhler, who has now come into... Uh, the, the, the announcement was made a long time ago, but he's actually been appointed uh, now... He has stated that he would start a new round of talks with a view to forwarding the peace process. So we are hopeful that some, some new impetus will come into the
1: process. That Morocco doesn't play ball?
6: Well, Morocco took a long time to agree to his appointment, I believe. That might be, have been, that was part of the hold up. another story that one of the journalists in the United Nations says is that he wanted to have his own team in his office, a support team in his office, and there was some discussion about how big a staff he could have and who they were and so on.
1: Another UN body, the Commission on Human Rights, is also interested in what's happening in that area?
6: Yes, uh, periodically they they meet every year in Geneva. Submissions are always made on behalf of Western Sahara, but this year there's something called the Universal Periodic Review that goes around different countries, and it happened a couple of, or two or three years ago for Morocco, and they've been reviewing whether it has implemented any of the recommendations that were made at that time, there was a big delegation from Western Sahara with human rights activists, including a very brave woman called Sukaina, not Sultana, but another older woman called Sukaina who's suffered a huge amount, and I've probably talked about her before because her son was probably killed by, in, in hospital by the Moroccans not very long ago. They managed to get a a rather beautiful, glamorous uh, spokesperson to join the the delegation called Catherine Constantinidis, who is, despite the Greek-sounding name, is from South Africa. And she's a former Miss Earth Beauty Queen, but she's now a campaigner for the environment and human rights. So, the, And the Moroccans always hate it when there's somebody very glamorous speaking on behalf of the Sahrawis uh, because they do get a lot of attention, I'm afraid to say. This inevitably happens. So it's been a great boost for the Sahrawi cause to have her there.
1: And what is happening with the African Union vis-à-vis Morocco and Western Sahara?
6: Well, I'm not sure. There's, there's been an ongoing problem for a while considering a... a Application from Morocco to join a West African trade agreement co- called ECOWAS, uh, or trade group, a sort of block, like um, a, uh, an economic union. I'm not sure what's happened with that, but I don't think they have joined yet. But uh, Nigeria is trying hard to prevent Morocco from joining this group because uh, it is on the West, but it's not in the sub-Saharan part of Africa which is the rest of this economic union so uh, I don't know whether they'll get in or not but Nigeria says well there's a Maghreb economic union that would function perfectly well if Morocco would simply recognize Western Sahara and allow that problem to be solved and then the whole of the North Africa could benefit from having a, a properly functioning economic union.
1: Is there any support for Western Sahara across the ocean in the continent of America? I'm thinking more about South America.
6: Well, uh, yes, there's a number of countries there that support Western Sahara where have have um, recognised the Sahrawi Republic. And in those countries, uh, they receive a full ambassador. Uh, the Sahrawi diplomat becomes a proper ambassador and not just a representative like our representative here in Australia. But there was a problem quite recently in Peru because although it once recognised Western Sahara, the Moroccans persuaded it to not recognise it. Then just lately, since the new president, Brahim Ghali, was appointed, he visited and he thought he'd persuaded them again to re-recognize Western Sahara and so he sent a representative called Hadija to Muhta but the Moroccans managed to do something we think the Moroccan lobby got hold of the the Peruvian authorities and they detained this Sahrawi diplomat in the airport in uh, Lima and she refused to go they wanted to deport her she said she wasn't she was a proper representative and she was coming to represent her country and she stood firm for a good few weeks but eventually she has been deported I'm sad to say back to Spain and I don't know any further repercussions from that but it is a pity because uh, it's a shame on diplomacy really uh, worldwide not to recognise diplomats in this way.
1: And there are a number of human rights groups and activists in the United States supporting them. Oh,
6: yes, well, there are. I mean, one of the most vocal is Suzanne Scholter, who has been once again bearing witness at the, um, the fourth United Nations Fourth Committee. It meets always at the early days of October, so it was meeting, might be even still meeting this week. It was meeting last week anyway. A lot of different people go and different organisations, but particularly American because it's in America, it's in New York. But Suzanne Schulter was very alarmed to read a completely garbled version of the speech she had made. And it seems as if, they, once again, the Moroccans had somehow managed to get hold of the official report on what, who had said what, and they were reporting that speakers in favour of Western Sahara had supported the Moroccan Autonomy Plan, which is a bit naughty.
1: Just a bit. <laughs> a bit naughty, yes. Human Rights Group there, that was Kennedy.
6: Oh, the, yes, the Robert Kennedy uh, Foundation has been very supportive. and um, Academics? Robert Kennedy gave a award to Aminatou Haidar, but then there was another one whose name I just can't think of for the minute. She got a different award from, from that group. There's also a very strong bar association, uh, of lawyers headed by somebody called Caitlin Thomas who speak very, speak out well in favour of Western Sahara.
1: And Stephen and, Zunas? And
6: Stephen Zunas, of course, yes. Yes, he's in, um, based in San Francisco
1: a little town near the border or on the border of Western Sahara and mauritania we 've been talking about that over months. A dispute centered on a bit of bitumen didn 't it in the end it did it did that 's
6: right the, the place was called Gargarat, and it was like the last place going south into Mauritania on the Western Sahara mainland to get into Mauritania, it has to cross the military berm or wall. On each side there's a so called buffer zone, some of which is filled with landmines by the Moroccans. The Moroccans claimed that they wanted to put an end to black market tearing and they blew up a lot of cars that were parked there. The we said that the cars were there because the Moroccan authorities wouldn't allow them into the territory. People had been trying to buy them further south in Africa and bring them up into Western Sahara. And they were often very expensive makes like Mercedes because they're so tough to and can endure the hard conditions in the desert. So that's what started off that they started blowing up these cars. But then they started trying to tarmac the road in this intermediate area. The... Saudiis mobilized and brought in a group and the United Nations mission, Minerso, sent a patrol group to watch what was happening. There was a kind of a standoff for many months from between August and December last year, and eventually they agreed to keep at the status quo and not to tarmac this road. Some people thought it was that the Moroccans were trying to Throw the peace process off course because the the then special envoy from personal envoy of the Secretary General Christopher Ross was trying to have another round of peace talks and in fact he did have to postpone that round and so in that sense the Moroccans achieved their objective but. At least there was a standoff and they didn't get their way fully. They really wanted to just be able to have easy trade with, with Mauritania by having a proper road all the way. But yes, this, this is a part of the country that very, very few people ever visit. It also just at the start. It goes into Mauritania, but running alongside the coast of Mauritania, there's this little peninsula ending in Capo Blanco. There's a town there called La Guerra, which is the symbolic end of the Western Sahara Territory. And we've found a little documentary about that place. And we're going to show the documentary in the North Fitzroy Library on the 20th of October. If you come there, we're in Seminar Room 2, which is next to the Best Street entrance. The new library is a triangular building running between St. George's Road and Best Street, And it's got an Aboriginal name. It's a beautiful new library. And it's, if I can get it right, Bargunga Najin.
1: And what time is that?
6: So it's seven o'clock, if you come. We we are having an uh, annual meeting prior to that at six. We're hoping to expedite our business quickly and uh, to be through uh, at seven.
1: And what's the theme of this film?
6: A lot of people sort of reminiscing about what it was like living there in Laguera before the war, before 1975, when the Spanish troops were there, it was quite an important town for the Spanish. They had a big a fort and garrison there, built a hospital and school and an important town. As soon as they withdrew in 1975, or perhaps the beginning of 76, it became part of the country that was given, in quotes, to more to slice up between them and and Morocco. The Spanish left and the Mauritanians were were looking after it, but the town really became ruined. And then it's a ghost town now because they depended on a supply ship coming from the Canary Islands and, well, anyway, it was under military occupation. So all the population dispersed. And this film traces three different people who represent the Sahrawi diaspora really there's one living in Mauritania, another one living in the Sahrawi refugee camps in Algeria and a third one living in the Spanish uh, Canary Islands and I suppose Europe, the camps and Mauritania are the main places that the Sahrawi population now live in Uh, well one half, the other half are still under occupation in, um, that part of Western Sahara that Morocco is, uh, occupying. Just prior to the film, we'll have an update from the Sahrawi representative to Australia's Kamal Fadel, who's coming down from Sydney to be with us. We'll be able to hear exactly what's happening to the cargo of phosphate that was arrested in South Africa and, as far as we know, is still sitting there. Hundred and 50 days after it was arrested.
1: And that was Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And that film night, again, is the 20th of October. It's a Friday evening. We're beginning at 7pm. And it's at the North Fitzroy Library, apparently a brand-new building, a triangular building near the corner of or on the corner of St George's Road and Best Street in North Fitzroy. It's called La Guerra. I think I said that right. And it means, I've been told, the wall. And, of course, the wall that the Moroccans built right through Western Sahara, a bunder sand wall, lined it with. Landmines and all horrible things that people seem to do these days, but that's um, Friday Friday week, the 20th of October, at the North Fitzroy Library, corner of St George's Road and Best Street, and it's in the seminar room two to see
4: the film The Wall. When you were young, did you walk to school? Most children these days don't. In October, hundreds of thousands of children, parents, and grandparents around Victoria will be part of Vic Health's Walk to School Month. Why not join them? Walk to school with your kids or grandchildren and enjoy the chance to talk and teach road safety skills while getting active yourself. It's a great way to spend quality time together. Ask your kids' primary school if they are doing something special for Walk to School Month and remember to walk, ride a bike or scooter to and from school in October. To find out more or to register, visit walktoschool.vic.gov.au, a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Sarah, I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name is Paula, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth, I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 la,
3: la, la. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, a tuneful experience.
0: A 3CR supporter. Come to the Union Activism and History Conference, featuring a first-hand account of BLF green bands. Farm worker organising with the National Union of Workers, rebel women, a secret history of Trades Hall, campaigning for a union, yes, and much more. The Union Activism and History Conference, hosted by Socialist Alternative and Red Flag newspaper, Saturday, October the fourteenth, at Trades Hall Carlton. For more information and bookings, head to redflag.org.au. A three CR supporter.
1: Latest cost predictions by proponents of reopening the Panguna mine in Bougainville is estimated at between US 4 to $6 billion. This figure was produced during the autonomous Bougainville Government's three-day tax and revenue summit looking at funding ways to improve the financial outlook for the region and the Government's ability to fund services for its people. But the people in the area where the shut mine is located, particularly the women landowners, are adamant the mine will not reopen, particularly until there's a vote for self-determination. They suffered the environmental and human costs of that mine and the subsequent war. Today I'm speaking with Kuntamari Crofts, a Bougainvillean now living in Australia, who in 1994 was the first Bougainville-accorded Refugee status after a 2.5 year battle with the Australian Immigration Department, a measure of security which her people at home did not have, and she vowed to continue to work to end the crippling blockade and struggle for self-determination. Kontamari now lives in Sydney. She comes from an area of Bougainville not quite where the mine is, but nevertheless affected by the closure and subsequent violence.
5: I think, this, I think it's fair to say that the, the struggle actually started from the closing of the mine from 1988, but prior to that, there was little impact in my, family's er, my family area, just because the tailing was going to the west coast and not the east coast.
1: How did you get to be in Australia during that time?
5: I came to Australia because my stepfather was a Queenslander, it was, you know, after he Grade 6, I had the opportunity and, the, and fortunate for his family, his nephew and his newly wedded wife, to say they would become my guardian so that I could do high school in Brisbane.
1: And how old were you when the fighting broke out?
5: I left in 1984, so I was 13 and I would have turned 14 in May of 1984, 1984 January.
1: And what were you hearing about what was happening back home?
5: In 1989, I had moved to Canberra to do Year 12, and there was news coming, but the letter, the news that made an impact on me was, I got a letter from my mum saying, you know, basically they've they've, um, taken into the the jungle and um, don't come home, meaning don't go home to broken girls.
1: And what did you gather from that letter was it a fear in her writing?
5: Yes, yeah, definitely. You know, because she, you know, she doesn't say things like that. And I mean, it was it was written on her behalf by one my auntie, my her sister. So, you know, they don't say things like that lightly. But you know, I had heard that you know the closing of the mine took place, and and then, but just getting a and a letter from her. In some ways, it made me feel at ease, but at the same time, you know, a bit scared for them.
1: What were you hearing in the media here or from people who might have been there or tried to get into Bougainville? What did you know?
5: Yeah, in the beginning, they, you know, they were just being caught and staying out of the way, going, you know, leaving their homes and, and going into the uh, bush. Bush camp, and then later, maybe in the 1990s, 1990, 1990 So by that time, I had moved to Melbourne, and I had to renew my student visa because I was on a student visa. So I approached immigration to see if they could extend with my student visa, or if they could, you know, assist me in any way. With um, and in my hands, I had a letter from my guardian, you know, explaining what was going on and that I had no family in Moresby to go to so they couldn't send me to Moresby if they couldn't send me home to Bougainville.
1: You couldn't go back?
5: No, and my mum clearly said don't come home to Bougainville.
1: And what was the reaction of the Australian authorities when you applied for that?
5: Well, uh, <laughs> I had no idea. I I'd never, you know, I didn't know. You know, at that time, I didn't really know. I heard the word, you know, refugee, but I didn't really understand it fully. And I just thought, you know, with my letter from my godmother, Dr. Barbara Rudas, that, you know, they would, um, I don't know, have a humanitarian heart, you know. But, you know, it's all first-hand experience. You don't really know. It's an uncharted path, Anyway, so, but I didn't, yes, I didn't realize. Until you know, they had. Then I had to go up to a special level five or three in a special branch. When I got led away, and then I knew that I, you know, I felt insecure, scared, and then I, you know, put in a van to take into the deportation place in Mar um, in Maribon.
1: And you were how old then?
5: I was twenty, and then while I was there refugees from, or asylum seekers from Somalia, even Vietnam at that stage, they were still, you know, coming through. And, yeah, a few African um, countries. And um, one of them gave me a card, and, uh, a solicitor's card, and said, you know, call this call this solicitor. I, I forget her name. She called me and... um she didn't sound convincing when I talked, you know, when I was telling her my story. And then I think somehow, a lot, you know, in our conversation, I convinced her. So she, this is when I first heard of Rosemary Gillespie. So she said, um, I know somebody that might help you, who's familiar with the Pacific, because Rosemary Gillespie had worked with the um, the Fijian coup.
1: And how did she help you? She just walked
5: in like I think it was a. Tuesday or Wednesday was my deportation day. And I can't remember, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. So she came to the detention centre with a refugee application. So we did that and she submitted it and that's what stopped my deportation, submitting that application.
1: You were one day away from being deported.
5: Yes, yeah. So, you know, just again fortunate, lucky. Well, through that, yeah. So um and then she didn't know much about the conflict then and and then, you know, she was so intrigued and fascinated as a wife you when know, and she made the trip home to well, go through the Solomon Islands. And um, it was actually my brother who took her across the the blockade when she got there. So that's how, uh, but I didn't see after she left. I didn't really see or hear much about, you know, how she went. So until she came back to Australia, then she was doing a, a talking tour. And then by that time, she had met up with Moses Arvini.
1: And listening to her stories, what did you learn about what was happening at home?
5: Oh, yes then, you know, she confirmed that there were uh, full-on operations, you know, like mortar bombs firing into the, the j- jungle area. And, and, and then, you know, a few years later, you know, my family had told me, you know, when I went first in 1997, but she told me that, yeah, there was a full-on operation that were conducted by PNGDF, Papua New Guinea Defence Forces. My family and I... I can talk about them because they told me the stories. They were in, you know, in this mode of, um, you know, this hype. Everything's hyper there, because you have to rely on your intuition and survival mode. You know, your body goes into that survival mode where, yeah, when you go out to look for food, you, everything was done super fast, super quick. You know, going to the garden while someone's watching, you know, getting what you need, and then go heading back to the
1: camp. Tell me what it was like when you went back in nineteen ninety seven. What was the distru- destruction of this, the areas?
5: It was nineteen ninety seven, so we just—I went in just before the you know the peace, the truth was signed. Yet we, we you know we, I went through the in Turkiza Haniada, and there was still you know the boats that were crossing the blockade. There there was still high alert security, and actually I went in with um. Uh, Mark Worth, the Freelance filmmaker. So we you know he had to be hidden. Luckily, I was tra- travelling with my brother, so you know they had to make the check, double check that it was safe. So you know it was. I could still experience the the danger and the you know the alertness that you know people had whilst crossing that water between Taro and either uh, south, like Buin or my area, Europa area, which is near the Europa airport, that stretch of beach along there. So, you know, I got a, I got a taste of that alertness, of, of just, you know, to survive, like, you know, there's danger. When we got home, people had, you know, moved back to our homes and on the coast, inland bit from the coast, yet, you know, going into Arava just had to be careful and, and we didn't go I don't, we didn't go into Rava we just stayed around Europa and tried to trek to to Panguna.
1: Did you get there?
5: Unfortunately we didn't quite make it there. There's some complication happened in a place called Sipuru that we had to we had to turn around and come back.
1: Yeah. While you were there what stories were people telling you about the hardships over those years, the people who died, the lack of food, lack oh, of medicines. I mean,
5: you know, just through my family, my sister lost a child, her fifth child. She had to travel, travel to Gizo, and then she, you know, she didn't. The baby didn't make it. So, you know, they lost weight, you know, because they had to travel you know, down to the valley to fetch water and climb up. So they were, you know, so they had sling down. But it was, you know, it was tough. And one of the things my mum did, is, being a midwife, she actually, you know, gave birth to maybe 50 babies from 1989 to 1997. So... And she, you know, she delivered all, most of her grandchildren, but all the all the mums from the Kongara to just, yeah, the Kongara era, just before um, Panguna, the mountain next to Panguna, all that area that would come and seek her out to assist in childbirth. So it was very hard. And she, she was very proud that she didn't lose many babies. The ones that she lost would have been stillborn, but... Um, yeah, it was tough. And, of course, people, like most people died of, you know, the basic medicine, you know, malaria tablets or cold. If you got a really bad cold, that would turn into pneumonia. And because people were living, you know, in this, the mid-mountain range, which is quite cold, you know, can get cold at night. So, you know, if your immune system's down, then you're, able, you know, you can catch any, you know, like the, the cold and, and if you don't treat it, then you, it turns into pneumonia. So, but I think most people died, especially children of malaria.
1: Were the PNG Defence Force soldiers in that area?
5: They were, they were in Europa, so they had an, a base near the airport, Europa airport. And so the operations in this area were called Speed One and Speed Two operations, High Speed sorry High Speed One and High Speed Two, and I think one of them uh, when did I read this um, Russian dog or something? It was another operation name. But they were yeah. So at the end of they were very close. I mean they were firing mortars from the beach, from beach. And the mortar would actually reached our our property on on the hill, so I don't know how many meters that would be, but from our property because it's a bit hilly, you can you can see the ocean, you can see the airport so um it was so it was a fair way in that they were firing, and so of course they weren't you know they had that's what they had to move further up in into the the highlands. Again, from the helico- helicopters, you wouldn't cook like because the helicopters would see the smoke. So there were there were times, you know, so they had to find like maybe cave or really thick canopy for them to to cook, so that the smoke wouldn't that you know nobody can see them. The army wouldn't see them from the chopper.
1: Were the BRA members in that area as well?
5: Yes. Yeah, so. You know, my family, my brothers—they were—they were part of that op- operation in that area. So, um, you know, most of our relatives died. My relatives died.
1: How did they die?
5: Yeah, that's one. They were shot, and then, you know, die. Yeah, I won't. It's too graphic. But anyway, they were chopped and planted on the beach. And then, and you know, they use that as bait. As bait? That'd be injured, yeah. So, yeah, so the family, when they went to get them, that's when they would um, wait for them. But, you know, it was hard for the family just to leave them there. Yeah. My brother James actually went and got his, um, it was his brother in law. You know, so... And that's just one of the many stories.
1: Did you get the feeling that peace would never come? Was that a worry, that this war would just go on? Oh,
5: absolutely, absolutely. So they were just so relieved. You know, but, you know, the truth is Australia was losing and PNG were losing money, so they had to call the truth. We all know that the australian taxpayers paid paid for the for the financial you know supporting of bng the
1: government and its army so everybody was
5: relieved a bit of breathing space and um,
1: you said you went in nineteen ninety seven how long before you went back again
5: two thousand and two after i finished uh, my degree i went back for twelve months to to live in yeah just to be with my family
1: were the wounds healing for them by that time of the war
5: well yes by this time my oldest brother had moved to Araba and you know the businesses people were just living you know running their businesses and my brother had a building construction business so It was the peace, the Bougainville peace process time. When did they, they signed it in 2000, the Arava peace agreement. The UN was there, the, you know, UNDP, so lots of aid people. And the, I think the peace monitoring group was still, were there as well. So you had the Australian and the New Zealand and some, maybe I think, or Vanuatu or Fiji. But, yeah, there was the was peace the peace time, peace process.
1: Fast forward to 2017, and we have plans by a number of groups to reopen this mine. The women are the landowners in that area. They don't seem to be part of the equation when people say, we're gonna reopen the mine. It's up to the women, isn't it, whether this mine goes ahead.
5: Yes, yes it is. And um while I was you know, I was there last month and just reading on what's happening in the news, it's you know, it was even difficult for me to understand who was who. But when I was there, you know, I had this great opportunity to meet one of the the women from the Panguna area. And she was one of the the women who organised this amazing. Well, it's a very significant for me. It's a very significant action that happened on the 15th and the, the 16th of of June. The ABG, the Autonomous Spoken World Government, was going to sign the Memorandum of Agreement, the proposed Memorandum of Agreement. But um, in this meeting, I, I found out that the ABG had not consulted them or showing them—not consulted them—they didn't show them the draft that they were going to Panguina <laughs> to sign. I think the members of the special mining lease of the Kain landowners—they felt like they were being ambushed. So the women saved the day. This is my take on it. They held the protest on the 15th in Arava. They went to the, the office of the BCL, and then on the 16th, on the 16th, they went and stood at the, the it's called Morgan Junction, where the road up to Panguna and the other road leads to the North Booker. So that's where the women stood that day, and ABG. And its delegates didn't go through because the women pointed. They stood there and pointed to the road to Booker, that they were not going to sign. There was not going to be any signing.
1: And from then on, what happened?
5: So, well, the the talk is still going. And from then on, you know, they had. um, If they had signed it, then things um, regarding the reopening of the mine would be in ABG's favour and the PNG government, um, ABG, BCL, PNG. What I learned was that there's no real opposition to the ABG, so the political body of the Special Mining Lease or SIGLA landowners, S-M-L-O-L-A, acronym for them, they're standing up, you know, to um, show real opposition. There has to be an opposition to ABG, and this is the... The people, I mean, it's the people's body. But what I was, you know, being here in Sydney before I went home, I was being confused about who were the parties that was working with ABG from the Panguna area and who was really opposing it. So the SMLO LA are the real opposition to ABG and BCL and PNG.
1: ABG is the Autonomous Broganville Government.
5: Yes, and it's in line with, you know, it's working with um, BCL and, of course, Papua New Guinea. The whole push towards reopening the mine, we even heard it, you know, a couple of years ago, but I think what ABG and the people behind ABG is that they're trying to push an issue that is irrelevant to the process. I believe, you know. We shouldn't be talking about reopening the mind, really. But the mood on the ground, you know, it's like inevitable to reopen a mine. And when that word comes up, you know, just, it's just another Western term because there's so many other things like fishery, like the cacao plantation. There's all this fanta- already there that people are doing and earning an income and generating an income and this issue about push for reopening mining and getting a debate. And before 2019, it's a a sidetrack. It's just to throw people off from the real issue. I support no mining until after independence. This is another new thing. It's always been this way. Just because the referendum's taking, taking place in 2019 in June, with all this push... To reopen the mine i just find it um numbing it's scary you know it's scary because it's it's the same same thing nothing has really changed from 1960 to now the same tactics divide and rule tactic and trying to get the the ones that aren't really from the special mining list area to get them to sign it, like ABG was, you know, is trying to. So all these tactics that is tactics being being played, as we speak. The bottom line is the people, the women, are there, and they're not going to go away. That's you know something positive that stays with me, and I I know that as long as they're standing firm on the on their belief and and their self determination, then it's gonna be okay.
1: And they're doing it tough, aren't they? They've they've got haven't even got mobile phones.
5: Yes, smartphone would be good because you can, you know, do Facebook Live, you know, and they can broadcast themselves if they have, hold an action. Plug into the the global audience.
1: So what is needed to get these phones for the women?
5: I've started a GoFund account to form uh smartphones. They can do their work, so and you know we can, I can communicate with them. And but you know, more importantly, it's for them to get their stories out, and they can talk to people, you know, themselves. And uh, but images are really important. The digital space is is a great space to be part of, and they you know they can hook into the the social
3: platform as well, the me- social media
1: platform. You're looking for help to. Purchase those
5: phones. Yes, yeah. To get, um, I've put up, I've set the account up. I think 1700 seventeen hundred, and I've worked out that the well, the phones are six hundred Kina, which is about three hundred Australian dollars, and I've put an extra so that they at the moment they're actually working on, um, collecting data, so hopefully some of that money could assist them in the in their travel.
1: And that was Kuntamali. Crofts, Bougainvillean woman now living in Australia and as I said in that interview she was the first Bougainvillean to be granted refugee status back in the 1990s I think it was yeah and it's just been back there again working with and speaking with the women landowners who say no we don't want mining, we don't want that mine to reopen, even if it does reopen, it will only be after independence. remembering what happened to the people of Bougainville with that mine and with the closure and the war <coughs> the war that followed and leading to the death of twenty thousand Bougainvillean people. no wonder they don't want the mine to be reopened and also the environmental destruction that that mine caused over those many years. If you can help to raise funds for smartphones for the women who are up against all those odds, there is a, a page. It's HTTPS, two strokes, two dots, gofundme dot com slash women dash four dash no dash mining so I'll read that again https two slash two dots www dot gofundme g o f u n d m e dot com slash women dot not dot dash for dash no mining and help them get the money to get some smartphones to fight this push to open reopen the, the penguin mine on Bougainville that's about all I have for today coming up in a few minutes time is dumbalo. But I might go out with um, a song by the late Dr. Yunupingu. And I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Bye for now.